Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi guys, you are very welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. My name is Zach Twomley, and, well, you are listening to When Diplomacy Fails, which is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. This month we are promoting... Tom Daly's American Biography podcast. And there's an extra special reason why you should check that out, because recently I did a talk episode with Tom Daly on the XYZ Affair, which, in case you're not aware, is a really, really interesting period of history where basically the Americans sent diplomats over to France on the eve of Napoleon's taking power and France descending into war and chaos and all that great stuff. So if you're interested in hearing me and Tom Daly talk about all these kinds of issues, I would really recommend you check out American Biography. Okay, so with that out of the way, I just have one more thing to tell you. Please make sure to go to wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie to support Zach to Cambridge. And if you have done so already, it is seriously, seriously appreciated, and I can't thank you enough for all the support, monetarily and otherwise, I've gotten already. But we still have a bit to go, so if you have a few bucks in your pocket that you just can't seem to get rid of, please send them my way. I would really, really appreciate it. Well, that's done then. Without further ado, thanks and enjoy the show. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 19. Welcome back to this special four-part series on the reactions to the Queen's speech on the 17th of January, 1878. In the last two episodes, we examined the speeches in the House of Commons, which followed the speech from the throne on the 17th of January. During that speech, the situation in South Africa was addressed, as well as a famine in India, and the ongoing debate over higher education in Ireland. 
The most notable part of the speech, though, the one which concerns us and the part which Britain's statesmen spent most time deliberating, was the paragraph which addressed the worsening Eastern crisis. It was here, with Russia recently triumphant and with the Ottoman Empire in the retreat, that the British cabinet had spent the past two months fiercely debating what exactly Britain was going to do. On the one hand, Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli insisted that a harsh stance should be taken against the Russians, so that they would not advance any further to the point that Constantinople could be endangered. While on the other hand, Foreign Secretary Lord Derby believed that diplomacy had not lost its importance and that all chances should be given for peace to prosper and a negotiated solution to be found. Above all, though the cabinet had different ideas about how to bring their end goal about, each minister recognised the importance in keeping Russia from capturing the Ottoman capital and thereby effectively ending that empire's existence. To do so would jeopardise the entire balance of the European system and would certainly provoke an even greater conflict over the spoils. The other issues, such as what was truly at stake, how Britain should respond and what the exact situation in the East was, were all regarded differently by Britain's ministers. Another group that saw the situation in a different light was the opposition. As we saw in the last two episodes, what actually occurred in these discussions was not so much a debate as it was a series of speeches and responses by ministers of state and the opposition. The former generally defended the government policy and the latter challenged us. Such was the flow of British politics, which you've seen in every modern political debate since. Last time in the House of Commons we saw figures like William Gladstone of the Liberal Opposition, the leader of the Liberal Party in the House of Commons, Lord Hartington, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sir Stafford Northcote, exchange words. In these debates, we see the landed gentry and other important ministers, such as the Secretary of State for India, Lord Salisbury, the leader of the Liberals in the House of Lords, the Earl of Granville, and the Prime Minister himself have their chances to speak. Lord Derby, unfortunately for us, had the misfortune to fall seriously ill in mid-January, so he misses these debates where it would have been very interesting to hear his side. It makes for incredible reading, and hopefully also listening. The entire reason why episodes like these are so important is because they are raw sources. They are invaluable because you can hear for yourself the concerns, the struggles and contradictions of the characters which I've tried to communicate to you over the past few episodes. You've heard me bang on about how important making a strong stand was to Disraeli and you've heard me say the opposite about other figures like Salisbury and the Liberal Opposition. But to hear these figures actually declaring their own positions before their peers and all the world is an invaluable resource. I believe it is essential to gain a proper grasp of the context of this world which I'm trying to present to you guys. As far as I'm aware, no other podcasts have done this sort of thing, so for that reason it's also quite exciting to me as a podcaster. With all that being said, before we begin I should give you a little context about the House of Lords itself. We've heard a lot about it, but we've never really examined what it was capable of, what powers it had, and how important it really was to the overall running of the British Empire. Britain, as we know, had two Houses of Parliament. The first was the Commons, the second was the Lords. The former was made up of individuals who are elected, while the latter are mostly appointed, sometimes by the Queen. The members of the House of Lords normally possessed grand titles, which differentiates them from the common man. Right now, in the modern House of Lords, for example, the leader of the House, the title given to the individual who leads the party in government in that House, 
is the Conservative Baroness Tina Stowell of Beeston. In the leader of the opposition in the House of Lords, a position reserved for the individual that leads the largest opposition party in that house, is the Baroness Angela Smith of Basildon. What should strike you about these two figures is that they are both women. In our timeline, and only until very recently, the vast number of hereditary lines could only be led by men. Times, thankfully, are changing. Even the modern Speaker for the House of Lords, the individual meant to be politically impartial and control or essentially chair the debates, is a woman. You can see a pattern. It's a similar system to the one used by the Commons, and it does help to streamline things a bit when it comes time to debate. In our era, having a leader for both sides enabled members of both houses to feel as though they were being directed. You may remember, though, that so chaotic and divided was Disraeli's ministry that the leaders in both houses barely knew at times what policy they were supposed to represent. The 19th century was a period of immense political change in Britain, and this was most notably felt in the House of Lords, where numerous reform bills had seriously limited the decision-making capabilities of that house and passed them instead to the Commons. Old habits die hard, of course, and members of the Lords still possessed a level of influence and power reserved only for the richest and oldest families in the realm, but the Commons was no longer so beholden to the Lords as they had once been. Now it was the Commons that proposed legislation, it was the Commons that made major decisions, and it was the Commons that was the most important body of Parliament. The Lords still had its veto, which remained an important device right up until the First World War, and distinguished members of the Commons often rose up to the Lords once their tenure or physical capabilities had become limited with age. One such member who did this was Disraeli, who as the Earl of Beaconsfield ascended to the House of Lords in mid-1876. This left something of a hole behind in the Commons, which often happened, but Disraeli by no means twiddled his thumbs in the House of Lords. He remained a critical voice in defence of government policy, and alongside peers like Salisbury and Derby, themselves both stalwarts in the Lords' scene, represented the most important faces of a government which seemed to view both houses equally, owing to a conservative sympathy for the old system, which remains to this day. The Queen's speech was performed in the Lords, and the Lords debated its contents before the Commons had the opportunity to. We covered the House of Commons first to save the big hitters like Salisbury, Granville and Disraeli till last, but as we saw, the debate within the Commons did not suffer for their absence. Bearing in mind all we know about cabinet struggles and the difficult time ministers had had over the previous months, as well as the rocks into which the Disraeli-Darby friendship had run aground, I hope you'll find the following speeches and declarations interesting. And once again, I hope you'll forgive me for this monologue, which I feel was nonetheless necessary to set you up for what's about to follow. Without further ado then, let's get down to it. The time is roughly the late afternoon of the 17th of January 1878. And the first to speak in response to what was just said in the name of the Queen was Edward Montague Stuart Wortley Mackenzie, who mercifully had his name shortened when he was created the first Earl of Warncliffe in 1876. Warncliffe was essentially a railway baron who had consolidated the various railways under his control to create the Grand Central Railway in the early 1870s, so yeah, he was absolutely minted. Let's find out how he opened the day's events. (music) 
The Earl of Warrencliffe, a conservative, wealthy railway baron from Yorkshire, was the first to speak upon the delivery of the Queen's speech in the House of Lords on the 17th of January. His observations make for interesting listening, particularly those about cabinet divisions. He said, The country is not exactly trembling, that would be too strong an expression, on the balance of war, but it is impossible not to recognise the possibility that we may at some time be drawn into the conflict now raging in the East. Other wars have raged within recent years. There was the Indian Mutiny, in that we alone were concerned. The struggle was between England and the rebellious subjects of the Crown, and there was no pretext for the intervention of any other power. Other wars there have been between nations on the continent of Europe, between the northern and southern provinces of America. In these, England or English interests were not concerned in the issues. It cannot, however, be contended that in this great struggle between Russia and Turkey, there is not great danger of English interests becoming involved. We are standing in the face of great danger, which, instead of diminishing, is becoming greater day by day. It is natural that the country should feel great interest in the subject, and that Her Majesty's Government should watch attentively the signs of danger, that they should note the spread of the area of war and the advance of one of the combatants upon the capital of the other. We know that there are many who do not agree in the attitude of the government, and that there have been many an angry criticism upon the conduct of Her Majesty's Ministry. I do not propose to follow in detail the various steps taken by the government since the commencement of the war, but I think your lordships will agree with me that nothing could have been more satisfactory, under the circumstances, than the conduct of the leader of the opposition, or the manner in which the government has dealt with the various difficulties that have arisen. Again, those members of the opposition parties who have a responsible position, those who are the recognised leaders of their respective parties, have been very cautious in their language since the outbreak of the war. But when I come to those who have no responsible position, I'm obliged to say that the language used by many of them is not such as ought to characterise members of a fair opposition. They assumed facts which did not exist, and then based arguments and drew adverse conclusions on their assumptions. They suggested a split in the cabinet, and assumed that Her Majesty's ministers were divided into numerous sections, which held various and antagonistic opinions. They assumed that on the part of the government, there were dark designs that had not been expressed in the ministerial utterances. An agitation was set on foot and political meetings were held, sometimes in buildings which had been erected for very different purposes. At these meetings the government were censored for certain opinions which it was assumed they were entertaining, and, on the other hand, when they advised Her Majesty to summon Parliament three weeks earlier than usual, they were abused for that. Then, quite recently, a conference had been held and a manifesto containing a declaration of opinion had been issued, with the object of, to a certain extent, influencing the policy of Her Majesty's government. But such proceedings will not bear examination for a moment. In estimating the conduct of the government, we must be guided by the test of certain touchstones. And if your lordships will refer to the utterances of the different members of the government, it will be found that they are all consistent in their statements of their policy. If your lordships will refer to the utterances of the Home Secretary, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Secretary for War, and the Secretary for the Colonies, it will be found that they are all agreed in the definition of the Prime Minister that the position of this country is one of conditional neutrality. When, therefore, the country is agitated on the manner which I have described, when Her Majesty's ministers have been thus continuously addressed by public speakers in words of remonstrance and warning, 
notwithstanding that they have been consistent in the declaration of their policy, the necessary result must be to weaken the influence of this country abroad. Warncliffe indeed appeared defensive in this extract, because he, like others, was obsessed with maintaining the facade of cabinet unity to the opposition and the world. We know full well that chasms existed in difference of opinion, so for Warncliffe to suggest that they didn't, to insist that they didn't, was nothing short of a bare-faced lie, and his colleagues would have known that he was lying. At the same time, they would also have recognised that the lie was an important one to tell, because should the truth get out that Cabinet was on the verge of disintegrating and had almost dissolved itself less than a week before, chaos would surely have resulted. Warncliffe continued to parrot the same policy as other Tory statesmen, that neutrality was conditional upon Britain's interests being respected by Russia. He said... When a great nation like England takes up the position we have taken, gives warnings to other countries, and sees a possibility that these warnings may be disregarded, how can its government avoid taking steps to support what they have said? If a country uses words which it is not prepared to back up, it will occupy a much lower position in the eyes of the world than it did before. I cannot think that at the present moment there is any danger to the Suez Canal, though no one could say that such danger may not arise if the war continues. At present, the whole danger lies in respect of Constantinople and the passage of the Dardanelles. It is agreed by the highest authorities that Constantinople ought never to be in the hands of any but a neutral power. If it were, there could only be but one course open to this country, that of keeping an increased fleet in the Mediterranean, which would of course involve a very much increased charge to the taxpayers of this country. Not only would the possession of Constantinople by Russia be dangerous to us in an international sense, but I do not think it would be favourable to the development of free trade or of British commerce. There has been much discussion and difference of opinion as to the effect to which the possession of Constantinople by such a power as Russia would have on our communications with India. Very high authorities, among them I believe the noble Secretary of State for India, are of the opinion that the importance of the occupation of Constantinople has been overrated in that respect. Well, however that may be, there is an aspect of the question which ought not to be lost sight of. The agitation now felt in India as regards the issues of war and the attitude of England is unprecedented, and I am assured from reliable private sources that the native princes there are looking closely to the events of the present time in order that they may be able to estimate the power of this country, in respect of our great Indian Empire. Hostile chiefs, who hope to, at some time or another, set up independent principalities, are looking forward to any events which may result in lowering the power and reputation of England. I rejoice, then, that, in Her Majesty's speech, the world has evidenced that Her Majesty's ministers have made up their minds to boldly face the difficulties of the situation, and to propose such measures, unpalatable for the moment they may be, as may be necessary to sustain her interests, the welfare, the prosperity of the British Empire. I still hope that there will be no occasion for action on the part of England. To Warncliffe, the idea that Britain would not possess the power to back up her threats was deplorable. Britain would only be taken seriously if she was able to bluff effectively, and if she was prepared to use force with sincerity. Warncliffe, in my mind, was very much in the Disraeli camp. Much like Disraeli, he would have bemoaned the spectacle of the leader of the opposition, the Earl of Granville, who prepared himself to criticise the government policy in a uniquely cutting manner. 
Granville was a firm critic of what he called Disraeli's spirited style of conducting foreign policy, which he insisted only created problems for Britain and cost it more money. What Granville wanted was to pull back from One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. From such a style and pursue peace above all. It was a policy he had followed with some success from 1870 to 74 as Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, but his later attempts to replicate it in the early 1880s under Gladstone would almost ruin the Liberals altogether. Interestingly about Granville, his desired method of conducting foreign policy appears remarkably similar to Darby's. Both sought peaceful alternatives and both balked at the reverence with which prestige was upheld. Having led the Liberals and the Lords since 1855, Granville was well versed in his responsibilities, and his rivals must have expected a frosty reception when he stood up to speak. He said, The noble Earl who moved the address stated, I think accurately, what he believed to be the general conclusions of the country on this matter. Whether they are wise or unwise I do not say. He observed that there was great jealousy of Russia, which I quite admit, that there was great discontent with the Turkish government, which I quite admit, and that there was great admiration of the qualities of the Turkish soldier, which I quite admit, and he coupled with these things a strong desire for neutrality and to avoid war. It is perfectly clear that the demand which you now make runs counter to this desire, and will excite a great deal of feeling in this country. Is it even advisable? if you even are able, as you undoubtedly can by the majorities you have in both Houses of Parliament, to obtain the means for a great increase of your material strength? How far will such an increase of your material strength be neutralised by the moral loss you will sustain from the opposition you will provoke and the excitement you will produce, not merely among one party but among those who are perfectly uninfluenced by party considerations in this matter? I may be asked whether I am indifferent to British interests. I believe there is no man in this house who is in the slightest degree indifferent to British interests. It is impossible that any of us, and more especially those of us who are statesmen, should be too watchful of British interests, but it is possible to talk a little too much about them. 
there are two things which may be safely said of British interests. One is that, like the possessions of the Queen and like the commerce of this country, they extend nearly over the whole world. The other is that, in very few cases indeed, are those interests isolated, and several form the interests of some other country. The very multiplicity of these interests make it possible to put them in different categories. The noble Earl of Derby stated with absolute truth that the greatest interest of this country is peace. It is a mere truism to say so. No one can gainsay the declaration, considering that we are the greatest commercial and industrial country of this world. But is the interest of peace confined to ourselves? Is it not desirable for Germany, for France, for Austria and for Italy? Is it not a necessity for Turkey and one of the greatest importance to conquering, but also impoverished and bleeding Russia? Therefore the interest of peace is one which we cannot claim a monopoly, but which belongs to the whole world. Our material interests, from their very multiplicity, must be considered in different classes or categories. There are some which deserve the watchful care of our government, which ought to be fostered by diplomatic persuasion and even pressure, but for the maintenance of which, keeping in view of their relative importance, it would be madness to go to war. There are others which we share with other countries, which may be properly maintained even at the risk of war. If we receive the moral and material support of countries, as much or more affected by them as ourselves, but which, as the Chancellor of the Exchequer put it so well last year, are common interests, for the maintenance of which we are not to be called upon to bear the exclusive burden. There are again vital interests, for which, with allies or without allies, at all risks and at all hazards, a government would fail in its duty if it did not call upon all the great, though latent powers of this country, and struggle to the bitter end. And any country would be ill-advised, however strong military resources, should they, with a light heart, think they could, with impunity, engage in a contest with this country when it is united and convinced that they are justified by a sound policy, by justice, and by necessity. In other words, Granville was making it plain that Britain would always possess the resources to fight a great war against a determined foe, but that at this moment such a war instigated by Britain would not be a just or necessary one, and that even the mere recalling of Parliament early was a step too far. Granville also made the point that, so great were Britain's influences across the world, that any war would restrict its ability to maintain its security along economic and military lines but that because other states so relied upon what Britain provided, they too would suffer as well. And so peace was in their interest as much as it was in Britain's. To conclude his speech, Granville addressed once again the issue of isolation, which British statesmen on both sides of the benches seemed to obsess over at some point. Where it was used as a criticism, isolation could be used in the negative sense to infer that diplomatic blunders on Britain's part had placed her in a position whereby she could avail of no friends, and would have to face any combination of enemies alone. Such was the image created by the opposition when they imagined the Bismarckian system. On the other hand, when one attempted to associate positive connotations with isolation, they could claim that it freed Britain from having to make difficult policy decisions, and that such freedom was deliberate because, owing to Britain's position as such an important trading partner in the world, every state wanted to do business with her in one way or another, and that thus she could avail of a working relationship with every state. Here though, predictably enough, Granville emphasised isolation's negative aspects when he stated, 
addressing the rumour that the Three Emperors League would restrain Russia, that... Now, my lords, there is one point which strikes me as singular, though it is possible that a satisfactory explanation can be given of it. We have been constantly told, circumstances seem to indicate it, and I for one believe it, that since the beginning of this war there has been an understanding between Russia, Germany and Austria, as to the limits beyond which the Russians would not try to carry out their demands. If this be the case, it hardly seems possible that our diplomacy has been so helpless that we have not been able to obtain confidential communications from one or both of these powers, what those terms are. We are told in the speech that Her Majesty's government's relations with all foreign powers continue to be friendly, which I am, of course, glad to hear. But it would indeed be a state of isolation if we could obtain no knowledge of the agreement which has been entered into, and which, considering the circumstances, military power and geographic position of the three empires, must so greatly influence the decision which will be arrived at. I should like Her Majesty's government to tell us whether they have this knowledge or not, though I do not ask them to tell us what this knowledge is, but it clearly makes all the difference whether they possess it or do not, and whether the demands of Russia are such to really affect British interests, or are not. If they are not, the government certainly ought not to have met Parliament with a flourish of this sort, that they were bound to summon Parliament to obtain additional assistance. There was one thing which I am glad to note, namely that the language of the speech as to the necessity of preparation for precautions against unexpected occurrences only applies in the case of the prolongation of hostilities. Therefore, I draw this conclusion, that it is possible that if hostilities are not prolonged, there will be no necessity for any such demand. The papers promised will show whether peace has been promoted or delayed by the actions of the government. The secession of those hostilities depends upon the perception of the Turks that they are unable to defend themselves and that they cannot expect succour from elsewhere. And, on the other hand, on the conviction of the Emperor of Russia that his reputation, which now stands high, must depend before the world and in history on the fairness and moderation of the terms which he exacts beyond those safeguards of the Christian subjects of the port, which by all his declarations he is bound to obtain. I am glad to hear, and I am happy to believe, that in giving effect to Her Majesty's speech, we do not bind any side of the House to any particular policy laid down in the speech. At these demands for information, coupled with controlled statements regarding the conduct of the government and foreign policy, Granville sat down and awaited the response of the Conservatives. Standing to give the government's official reply was none other than the Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, the Earl of Beaconsfield. Immediately, he aimed to address the fact that Parliament had been recalled three weeks early a state of affairs which many insisted demanded further explanation than the given one that ministerial advice and support from both sides was required during this time of crisis. Disraeli insisted that things had very much changed since Parliament had been prorogued a few months before, and that, owing to the march of events, deliberation followed by swift action was now essential. He said... My lords, the noble Earl who has just addressed you as leader of a constitutional party has not ventured to find fault with this government because they advised the Sovereign to call Parliament together at this period. The course he has taken is what might have been expected from one occupying the position of the noble Earl. But at the same time, the noble Earl has used every means his skilful rhetoric could dictate to impress upon your lordships that the assembling of Parliament was unnecessary and might have been very prejudicial. 
my lords, I think that your lordships will agree if you take a calm view of the circumstances which were existing and had occurred before the government determined so to advise the sovereign. The summoning of Parliament was not an unreasonable act, but one indeed quite justified. The noble Earl has referred to the state of affairs in the theatre of war at the time when Parliament was prorogued. It is unnecessary for me to call your lordship's attention particularly to that point. Your lordships will recollect that when Parliament was prorogued, Her Majesty, in her gracious speech while regretting the existence of that war, promised her Parliament that no efforts which Her Majesty could use would be wanting on her part, if opportunity offered, of using her influence for terminating that war. The government left Parliament with that engagement. The circumstances that then existed were most unpromising for any attempt by negotiation or amicable interference to terminate the contest. But as time advanced at a later period, in the autumn, particularly after the fall of Pleven, a great change occurred in those circumstances. The course of the war was then favourable to Russia in Asia as well as in Europe. That equality which for a time seemed to exist between the rival combatants had entirely disappeared, and it appeared to the government, watching these affairs with an interest which the House, I am sure, will give them due credit for, that events were ripening to a degree that afforded a probability, as time advanced, of terminating, by the friendly influence of the neutral powers, that terrible contest. What Disraeli did next was both interesting and revealing. Although the idea to recall Parliament sooner was circulated in mid-December in a series of stormy cabinet meetings, it was only when all had initially seemed lost in a meeting of the 12th of January 1878 that approval from all ministers was given for it to take place. In short, Parliament wasn't recalled early because the Cabinet could not be mobilised to agree to it, because that Cabinet was so fundamentally divided over how to proceed and only reached the decision in the end after weeks of agonising meetings which led to the compromise. But Israeli, of course, couldn't say this, so after Granville had asked repeatedly in his own speech beforehand why Parliament was not recalled if the government had received such news as they had had in mid-December, news which included the fall of Pleven and the apparent retreat of the Turks, as well as the imminent danger Constantinople was apparently in, the Prime Minister was forced to effectively fudge the truth by blaming the other circumstances of the season. Disraeli said, The Earl of Granville asked why, if you had made up your minds that Parliament should be called together to consider urgent affairs, did you not call it sooner? You waited a month. It was not exactly a month, but I will not quarrel about a few days' error in the calculation of the noble Earl. But the noble Earl must know that you cannot call a Parliament together at the will of a minister at 24 hours' notice. You must call it together when there will be a fair chance of adequate attendance in both houses. At that period of the year, ministers are much scattered in different countries, and have many peculiar engagements which it is necessary to fulfil. The whole economy and life of the country are disturbed by the summoning of Parliament at an unusual period. And besides, Christmas, when hallowed interests and associations must be attended to, formed part of the month. I think, therefore, if the noble Earl had been himself acting under similar circumstances, he would have considered what would be the most convenient period for Parliament to meet, and would have agreed with us and taken the same course. If he felt it to be wise and expedient to assemble Parliament, he would also feel it wise and expedient that Parliament should be assembled under circumstances which afford the least inconvenience to its members, and which give fair assurances that both houses shall be adequately represented when matters of state import and urgency are thus to be brought forward. 
In a breathtaking revision of the situation within his own cabinet, Disraeli went on to present the most ideal public face of his ministry that he possibly could, and reasoned that because the opposition did not voice significant disapproval at the time, it was unfair to begin to do so now for the sake of their own publicity. But publicity was exactly what the Prime Minister was seeking to dodge, specifically bad publicity. Because if it emerged that the cabinet had been tearing itself apart, that leaks had revealed the truth of the situation to Russian statesmen, or that Darby regularly led an anti-war party against him, he would surely be hammered by the press and would lose immense credibility in the public eye. And credibility, you may recall, was everything to Disraeli. To save credibility was the reason why Disraeli insisted he had not led a vacillating or hesitating policy, and it was the reason why he continued to adhere, as did his colleagues, to the line that all Conservative ministers spoke with the same voice at all times, despite rumours to the contrary. The Prime Minister said, My lords, I did not expect to hear tonight of the Andersi note or the Berlin Memorandum. I thought that part of the controversy had terminated, as I showed it ought in the last session of Parliament. The policy of the government might have been erroneous, might have been infirm, but at any rate, I think I may say that it was not a vacillating policy. Whatever our policy may have been, it was open to the challenge of the noble Earl and his friends. If we did wrong in accepting the Andrasy note, or in rejecting the Berlin Memorandum, why did the noble Earl and his friends and the other Houses of Parliament challenge our policy? Then why did not the noble Earl and his friends and the other House of Parliament challenge our policy and take the opinion of Parliament upon the question? We have a right to infer that so far as our policy is concerned, up to the end of the last session, that policy was accepted and sanctioned by the noble Earl and his friends. I say again, that our policy may be erroneous or may be feeble. Those are issues for parliamentary discussion. Bring forward your motions, argue upon those issues and we will fairly meet you, and let the Houses of Parliament and the country decide upon the question. But you have no right to assume that ours is a vacillating policy unless you can produce facts to establish such a statement. You cannot, you have no right, to make such an accusation depend merely on surmise and innuendo and anonymous communications. Why, the noble Earl knows very well that there is not the slightest evidence that there has ever been any difference between my opinions and those of my colleagues whom he has quoted with approbation and sympathy. I say from the very first that there has never been any hesitation by Her Majesty's Government as to the course of policy which they would pursue with regard to those great occurrences taking place in Eastern Europe. Our policy was not a hasty policy. It was not dependent merely on the Russians crossing the River Pruth, or because some occurrences suddenly brought about a state of affairs which might not have been anticipated. Long before the war commenced, long before my noble friend, the Marquess of Salisbury, attended the conference at Constantinople, we had foreseen the possibility of the great struggle occurring. We had to consider what was the duty of English statesmen, and what was the character of those British interests which might be affected by such a war, and what was the course we ought to pursue. We came, after a long deliberation, to the conclusion that it was for the interests of this country to observe in that war a conditional neutrality. We had to take a large view of the then existing circumstances, we had to consider the policy and the condition of many other countries, and we arrived at the unanimous decision, not a hasty one but a unanimous decision, that it was our duty to observe a policy of neutrality in case of a war between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. Well, I will say that from that policy we have never swerved, and I want to know what is the evidence that the noble Earl can bring forward that can fix upon any members of Her Majesty's government that we have ever hesitated in observing that policy. 
Disraeli was throwing down quite the challenge to the opposition, but he wasn't finished yet. In the next episode, our final part of this special examination of the speeches and debates which followed the Queen's speech on the 17th of January 1878, we'll examine his conclusions on the situation and how he planned to put Britain forward, while we'll also hear from Disraeli's noble friend, the man he had been conspiring to detach from Lord Derby for the past year and entice into his confidence, Lord Salisbury. I hope you'll join me for that episode, upon the conclusion of which we shall resume our coverage of the stormy but also transformative first few months of 1878. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.